mean I don't get to do Hebrews 11, 1 through 7? So, man, so disappointed in that. I know that uh, you're like me. Your thoughts and prayers are with uh, Matt and Lindsay during this time and um, how exciting. I, I remember, uh, how could I forget, um, having witnessed the birth of our three children, absolutely one of the most uh, sacred and amazing moments in my life. And that happened a long time ago, but it's, it's like yesterday. It's so real. So my thoughts are with them. And I know that a lot of you don't know me, um, but I, so this is going to sound a little weird, but I, I just need to tell you that I love this church. I really, really love this church. And I think maybe the, why I'm just overwhelmed at just the joy of worshiping with you this morning is that I feel like I witnessed the birth of this congregation. It was pretty, pretty amazing. I know that the church started meeting in the fall of 2010, but the whole year prior to that, there was a lot of praying, a lot of talking and thinking and strategizing and counseling and just discussions about this church. I I remember uh, sitting in Matt and Lindsay's uh, living room one night, um, long before this church ever met, uh, with uh, Bill and Jennifer and Drew and Sharon Dave and Julie, and just listening to them talk about, you know, what would this church look like? And so I feel like I have been blessed to, to witness the birth of this congregation, so I, I have a great, uh, y'all have a special place in my heart, even though I don't know a lot of you. So uh, we won't do uh, Hebrews, uh, we won't do that, because uh, I wouldn't be able to touch it near the way your pastor can, so I know you'll look forward to hearing him again next week. Um, so I, I want to begin by asking you a question, and uh, I want to just ask how many of you are old enough, that's already going to be a problem, how many of you are old enough to remember the Lone Ranger and his faithful sidekick, Tonto? I mean, so you got to hear this story. So the, the story is that the Lone Ranger and Tonto went camping in the desert, and, and you know, after they got their tent all set up, they both men fell sound asleep, and Several hours later, Tonto shakes the Lone Ranger, and he said, Kimosabi, look towards the sky. What do you see? Lone Ranger looks up, and he says, I, I see millions of stars. what that tell you? Lone Ranger pondered for a minute, and he said, well, astronomically speaking, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies. Time-wise, I would say it's maybe a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, it tells me that God is all-powerful and we are but small and insignificant. Meteorologically, it, it seems that we're going to have a really beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Tonto? Tonto shakes his head. You dumber than dirt. Someone stole tent. <laughs> you see, what I found in life is that we have a tendency to miss the most obvious things. Like the time when I went around hollering at my wife and my children for 20 minutes saying, where are my keys? I need to find my keys. Somebody put, picked them up. Someone took them. And 20 minutes later, I realized I'd been holding them in my hand the whole time. I mean, we miss the most obvious things. And now I know that this church is totally committed to studying God's word, to teaching and understanding the gospel and applying it to your lives. And the, the way one does that is to you, you begin to flesh out the gospel truths as they relate to your 
to your lifestyle, to your relationships, to your education, to your health, to your finances. And, and you see, the, the, the closer, the more effective we can be at pressing uh, God's truths into those areas of our lives, the deeper our relationship with God will grow and the more authentic our faith will become. But I found that there's an area of life, an area of life that is very significant, very important, and yet somehow I feel like we often fail to apply the gospel to this particular area. I'm talking about an area that is so obvious that we tend to miss it. I'm talking about our work, our work. So work is a pretty important part of our lives, isn't it? Studies show that most adults spend more waking hours working than anything else. In fact, most of those studies show many adults work as many as 65 to 70 percent of their waking hours. So it's pretty important. And so even, you know, I, I would say that, you know, if you're a student, you're, you're working as you go attend class and you study and you research and you write papers. That's work. Whether you're designing software or maybe you're selling real estate or maybe you're changing diapers. Maybe you're uh, involved in some kind of engineering work. Maybe you're teaching school. Maybe you're negotiating legal contracts. Uh, Regardless of what you're doing, any legitimate job, you're working. And that work, whether you realize it or not, is consuming tremendous amounts of not only your time, but your energy and resources and your emotional investment. And somehow within the church, we just haven't always helped each other connect the dots between our faith and our work. And there's a disconnect. Over the last 15 years in my work, I've had occasion to speak, and I'm not exaggerating, to hundreds of men and women about their faith and their work specifically. And I tell you, I'm convinced that most Christians really want their faith to make a difference in their work, but they struggle to make the connections. It just seems like two different worlds. So this morning, uh, I I want to use Scripture as our guide, and I want to help us make that all-important connection because if we never make that connection, we will spend the rest of our lives working Monday through Friday or maybe Saturday they will come and we'll worship on Sunday, and yet those two worlds will never meet. They will never intersect, and this is not the way God designed us to live our lives. I believe that the Word of God will show us that our faith has everything to do with our work. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And this morning, I want to draw your attention to two specific passages in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that I believe will give us a true understanding of this area of our lives that we refer to as work. And, And I want us to see and understand God's design for work, and then we're going to look at another passage, and we're going to explore man's distortion of work. So we're going to begin with Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And now skip to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. 
What we see right off the bat, right from the very beginning, is that, that God, from the beginning, God made work a vital part of his design of the whole universe, both his original design and his ongoing design. So we, we notice right off the bat in Genesis 2 that, that God took Adam to the garden. He, he, he doesn't, you know, check in with Adam to make sure accommodations are okay and you need a tea time this afternoon. He takes him straight to the garden. Now, I had a chance, my wife and I, Elaine, had a chance to visit uh, the Bouchart Gardens in Victoria, British Columbia a couple of years ago. And I have to tell you, we were blown away. And um, I'd visited botanical gardens before and been to some beautiful places. But when we walked into this place, it's like my senses were just totally, you know, on red alert. It was amazing. The colors were brilliant. The trees and the flowers were exotic. The, 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 the whole view of everything, it was fabulous. It was breathtaking. We were blown away. And if, if I was thinking, if that's how I felt when I first saw the Bouchard Gardens, can you imagine what Adam must have felt when he saw the Garden of Eden, the garden that God planted? And yet, it's interesting to note that God didn't, God didn't just place him in the garden to enjoy the beauty. You know, that's sometimes how we want to live our lives. Hey, I just want to take it in, man. Just, just appreciate it. He put him to work. And, and it's interesting because verse 8 tells us that God is the one who planted the garden, and Adam's job was to cultivate it, to work it. So work is part of God's original plan. Have you ever thought about the fact that God could have designed it a different way? I mean, think about it. He could have. I mean, he's God. I mean, he could have created the plants and the vegetation to grow and produce on their own without any outside involvement. That'd be pretty cool. He could have, you know, what else we could have done? He could have taken a, uh, created some kind of special kind of animal who would go and, and harvest the food and bring and serve it to you while you're sitting on the veranda overlooking the garden. I mean, that would have been pretty cool. I mean, he's God. He has no limitations. But that's not what he did. He brought Adam into the garden and he put him to work because he created us to labor. Work is part of God's plan, even when the universe existed in perfection. We should not underestimate the power of Western thought and idea about work particularly, because it may cause us to struggle with grasping the significance of this truth. You may be thinking, now, why did God design work in the first place? Because work, I mean, is that really what we want? See, we need to go back and, and look at these first couple of chapters in Genesis to see that we get the answer, we get the clue by looking at God and observing him. You see, God, from the very beginning, was a worker himself. God was a worker. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3 says, By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all the work which he had created and made. So, if you know, three different times it says that God was working while he was creating the world. So from the time the idea of the world as we know it originated in the mind of God to the point in time where the solar system and planets were put in place and the land and, and seas on earth were formed and animals and humans populated, God was working. 
He wasn't just doing a job. He was creating and molding and shaping and forming and crafting. He was working and he was loving it. I hope you sense the fulfillment and the pleasure and the joy that God received from his own work. Because that's what he's designed you to do. It's amazing that we, we, we were created unlike any other creatures. We were made and given a soul and a spirit which gives us the capacity to know and relate to God. We know that God created us like, like himself in his image to work. And he, Ephesians 2.10 confirms this. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So God's design is that our workmanship is intended to accomplish his purposes. Jesus got the same thing. Same, he identified with this same truth. In John 17, 4, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you'd given me to do. Jesus knew that the way he would glorify his Father in heaven was to accomplish the work and the mission he had been given. And likewise, we glorify God by accomplishing the work that he has given us to do. But then that's where we sometimes run into trouble. See, that's where we create this unspoken gap where somehow we refer to things as being sacred or secular. We create this divide don't we? We talk about and value things differently. You know what I'm talking about. You're supposed to leave the spiritual matters up to the pastors and the missionaries. And, and then, you know, certainly not the bankers or the brokers or the doctors or certainly not musicians, right? Just kidding, Dave. Seriously, God values all honest work. It's all created by him. He, he never limited himself to working through those who are involved in ministry, Okay. So think about it. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. Seventy-five percent of the writers of the entire Bible were people who were not in vocational ministry. Jesus selected 12 men to be his disciples. Those same 12 men he was counting on to basically birth the entire church, the kingdom of God. And none of those men came from a spiritual background. They all came from various workplace situations. And if you think God was creative in the garden with all the species of plants and flowers he came up with, you ought to look at the people, the variety of occupations, the different skill sets, the different talents and passions and inclinations. That's creativity. He uses all of us to accomplish his purposes. One of my favorite, and I think one of the most fascinating women in the, in the Bible is a woman named Lydia. You remember Lydia in the New Testament? She was a shrewd businesswoman. She was persuasive and articulate in her communication skills. She had a Bed Bath & Beyond franchise specializing in purple fabrics. She was successful and influential. Her sensitivity to God and his work in her heart helped her seize the opportunity to open up her home so a church could be planted in her city. And then there's Nehemiah. He had great leadership and management skills, which served him pretty well as he became the general contractor over a huge 
government rehabilitation project. He overcame sabotage and international materials acquisition nightmares, inadequate labor force. He resisted profiteering and under-the-table deals, and he brought the project in ahead of schedule and under budget. That's Nehemiah. God uses all kinds of people. But there's an idea that seems to undermine this whole appreciation of God's amazing design for us as it relates to work. And it's this idea that's been floating around the church and somehow broadly accepted. It's the idea that Adam and Eve sinned and then God cursed work. That's not what happened. We need to get our facts straight. Genesis 3, 17 and 19 will tell us that God pronounced that the ground was cursed, not the work. It's the ground. He, he explains that labor will be hard due to the fact that thorns and thistles will grow in the dirt. And if you've ever done any gardening, like my wife has, you will know that weeds come natural. They just, they pop up everywhere. This is a picture of what the workplace is like. The ground represents your workplace. It's cursed with the consequences of sin, which does make our label more difficult and burdensome. But like everything else that God has created for good, he is all about the process of redeeming that which has been lost. To say that work is cursed would be the equivalent of saying marriage is cursed. Marriage is certainly not easy. You put two sinners together, it's pretty rough. And yet marriage can become the most amazing relationship and partnership that you could ever experience. The point is this. The purpose and calling to work didn't change after the fall. Work is a gift from God. God hardwired our DNA for work. He created us to work and to love our work. Unfortunately, we have a pattern of distorting good things that God gives us, don't we? Work is no different. So I want us to look at another passage that I think illustrates how humanity has distorted work. So turn with me a couple of pages over to chapter 11. Chapter 11 in Genesis. And let me read to you the first verses here of this chapter. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, there is so much to unpack in this passage, which we couldn't begin to do. I just want us to look at this, thinking about this theme of work. And I think we can see some things that are pretty interesting. Like, first of all, 
I think it's interesting to see how we get some glimpses of God's purposes for work revealing themselves in a positive way in this text. Initially, we see positive benefits of work advancing. For instance, notice the progressive nature of work here. Do you see that? In, in their marketplace, okay, we, we, we think about computer chips and new you know, things that Apple puts out, but in their marketplace, they develop new tools and processes. They develop new products like bricks and mortar. Here we see them using bricks in their construction. Now, don't lose the significance of this. At that time in the world, this was cutting edge. This was innovation at its best. Do you see the fingerprints of God in this innovation? Here are his creatures, human beings, made in his image, and they're finding new ways to use the raw materials that he had created in the first place. You see, God creates work as a means of expressing his creativity as he gives us creativity, as he gives us innovation. It's powerful. Something else that's really amazing, that's so positive in this text. Notice how they discovered the productivity of people working together. See, they had learned that by combining various skills and efforts of people, they could accomplish so much more than they could by themselves really amazing. This too is part of God's plan. As he commanded us to be fruitful and to multiply and as he creates each individual with a unique set of skills and inclinations or passions. And when we come together, great things are accomplished. Whether it's in a a nonprofit organization, whether it's in business, anything where people put work together, even a family, using the different skill sets, come together and it's a powerful thing. So everything seems to be going great when we look at this text. I mean, they are, they are innovative, they are creative, they are, you know, being industrious until we look into their sinful hearts. And then what do we see? Look at verse 4. It says, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, and, and let us make for ourselves a name. What we see here is pride and rebellion and self-centeredness. What we see here is a lust for power. I think we can also detect some fear in their hearts, fear of being scattered. So what did they do? Maybe you can relate to this. Rather than trusting in God's faithfulness, they attempted to compete with God. They attempted to meet their own needs. Through their newfound discoveries and their work skills, they thought they could become self-sufficient. They thought they could become powerful. Do you recognize any of those characteristics in your workplace? What about you? Do you view your work as a way to become self-sufficient so you don't need help from anyone? Do you seek to be self-sufficient so really deep down inside you don't want to admit it, but you won't have to trust God then? Do you allow fear and insecurity at work to drive you to manipulate people for your own purposes? Have you allowed the hope of success in your work to become an idol in your heart, something that you value and you want more than anything else? Does the way you work and relate to associates and colleagues betray the insecurity you feel inside as you work to preserve your identity and maintain 
control? It's interesting. This particular geography, this plain in Shinar, is actually where the city of Babylon was later built. You may remember Babylon. It's the place where Daniel would be deported to. But any student of the Bible realizes that Babylon is more than a place. It's a symbol used in Scripture, and it represents a system. It's a way of doing business, a way of determining values. You see, every day you and I go to the marketplace. Every day you and I go to Babylon to go to work. We're caught in the crossfire between the truth of how God designed work versus the way our culture distorts work. If we want to see God redeem work in our lives, then we must, we must employ a biblical perspective that we carry with us to work every day. Because we are going to be fighting this battle. And I just want to, I want to share with you three biblical applications that, that I, I hope are practical and powerful to help us begin to shape and develop a biblical perspective on our work. Three things. Number one, do your work for God. Sounds a little simple. Yeah. Do your work for God. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God gave them assignments, and they were doing their work for God. He was their employer. It was simple then. Now it's more complicated. Now we work for people. We have bosses. We have supervisors. We have boards of directors. We, we report to the bank because we are paying our loans back. It's, it's complicated. But Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily. In other words, with all your might, as for the Lord rather than men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Who do you work for? Really? Who do you work for? See, it doesn't matter if you're self-employed, a CEO of a large corporation. It doesn't matter if you spend your days cleaning house, changing diapers, and doing laundry. It doesn't matter if you do manual labor or only answer to a board of directors. We need to see God as the true employer. By seeing him as the one that we are working for, we will be more motivated to elevate our game. We will be more motivated to serve our boss and our direct supervisor or our clients. You see, even when your boss treats you poorly, even when your supervisor criticizes you and never affirms you, even when nobody on your team or maybe even your spouse really appreciate and notice the work you put in, the effort you put out, you can find tremendous satisfaction in knowing that God does. He sees our effort and our sacrifice. He sees us giving our best. And that will elevate us to work to the glory of God. I talk to a lot of people who are struggling with their calling, the young men and women. They're trying so hard to find their place in the world. They long to be where God wants them to be, which is a wonderful aspiration to have. But meanwhile, oftentimes, they're doing mediocre and half-hearted work where they are. And this does not honor God. Listen to the wisdom of this proverb. Proverbs 16.3, it says, Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. 
So there it is. Commit your work to the Lord. This is a call to work in a way that acknowledges that your Heavenly Father is watching. We approach each task with the utmost care and attention. So it doesn't matter whether you're landscaping or selling something or you're an attorney or whatever you're doing or if you're, you're cleaning your home. You receive all the training and education and do all the prep you can to be the best you can be to work to the glory of God. And then you lean on the promise in that verse. The second half of the verse, that God will establish you and reveal his plans as you move forward in faith. When we see ourselves working for God, then our best will surface. Our desire to excel will rise up. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep the streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare composed poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. If Christians in the marketplace are accused of anything, it should be for reliability and excellent work. Number two, work for the right rewards. The culture and the marketplace has some ideas about the rewards in work. And somehow those ideas have been transmitted to us. Okay? So here's what the culture thinks. Number one, work is just a necessary means to an end. I mean, it's nothing more than that. The culture tells us that the value of your job and your work is totally connected to compensation and position and power. The marketplace says that money and wealth represent the true reward for our work. The marketplace says that by, you get by by doing as little as possible, and that's the ticket. The marketplace tells us that the only reason to work hard now is so you can enjoy life later. These are all lies. These are myths. And they undermine the core of God's purposes and intentions for our work. And I can't emphasize that enough. These lies are the means Satan has of robbing us from the joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that God intends for us to experience on the job. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5. It has a unique way of bringing this into perspective. This is powerful. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 19. Here's what I've seen to be fitting. To drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him. For this is his reward. And he and has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor For this is the gift of God. I want you to let that sink in a minute. You see, the reward, the true reward of work is a gift given straight from the hand of God. And notice it's the work itself that is the reward. Did did you get that? It's the work itself that is the reward. See, we have missed it. We have bought into the lies and the myths. It's not the income. It's It's not all the benefits and stock options. Those things are all good. We, should, we, need to, we need to provide for our families and provide for our futures, and we need to, to work hard, and hopefully we can receive an honest wage. But the, but the real joy comes when we can discover the reward in our work. And we see this from God. Remember in Genesis 1, he's creating heavens and the earth. Every day, at the end of the day, God would look at what he did, and he would say, and God saw that it was good. Five days, he says that. At the end of the sixth day, he says, and God saw that all he did 
was very good. See, God loved his work and found great satisfaction and pleasure in it. I, I know that some of you hate your jobs. Maybe, you, maybe you're not treated right. I, I know the reality is some of you aren't paid what you're worth. I get that. And, I, you know, I think you should be wise and do everything you can to rectify that situation. I, I really do think that's important. Uh, maybe you don't feel like you're given the opportunities to reach your full potential. Um, it's, it's a tough position to be in. But the issue here is that there is a powerful pleasure that God has designed for us, and no one can take it away from us when we live this way. It's powerful. God wants us to find great reward in our work. The reward of work is found in the work itself. Number three, and finally, this is going to sound a little strange. Learn to rest. You say, wait a minute, David, I thought we were talking about work here. No, learn to rest. In Genesis 2-2, we read this. We see that from the very beginning, God models rest for us. It says, by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Now, let me ask this question. If the God of the universe prioritized rest when he didn't need it, shouldn't we? See, our strategy is to continue to look for new ways to be more efficient and effective. So we get all of our technology and all of our gadgets. Listen, I got an iPad and an iPhone over there. I know this. I get it. I'm always trying to figure out how I can get more done and all that. I get it. But sometimes we work so hard. You know, we're going to save time if we do all this. And, and you know what? My question is, how's that working for you? Because I, I like what one writer said. He described our lives in this culture as an intolerable scramble of panting feverishness. Can I get a witness in here? Is that what it feels like to you? See, the truth is our attitude about rest reflects our belief about God's ability to run the universe without our assistance. I'm sorry if that steps on your toe. I know it does mine. One of the less talked about Old Testament figures is a man by the name of Bezalel. Bezalel doesn't get a lot of press coverage in most Bible studies, but he was a very gifted designer and craftsman from Israel. There's a very concise resume and executive summary of his abilities found in Exodus 31. He was chosen to serve as the lead architect in the design and construction of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. I love the way the Bible goes beyond his credentials to describe him. Listen to this. In in Exodus 31, verse 3 and 5, it says, I have filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting and to carve wood for work in every craft. I mean, God had gifted Bezalel like amazingly. I mean, he had valuable marketplace skills that he had faithfully honed and perfected over time. And then he put him in this key position to do this work, to develop and build the very first tabernacle. Then the story takes an interesting turn. It says in verse 12 of chapter 31 in Exodus, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths, for they are a sign between me and you throughout your generation, so that you will know that I am the Lord who sets you apart. 
For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there must be a Sabbath for complete rest dedicated to the Lord. The construction of the tabernacle was a big project. And I am positive, I am sure that there was pressure to get it done, to bring it in on schedule. I imagine people were putting in long hours to meet all the expectations. Does that sound familiar to you? Does anybody live in this world? And yet, it's really true. Some things never change. In his wisdom, God instructed Bezalel and the others to observe a day of rest. He reminded Bezalel and all the other workers that he designed work, but he also designed an interval for rest. I believe God intentionally placed this instruction in the middle of the tabernacle story to remind his people that part of serving him faithfully, working faithfully, accomplishing his plans, is learning how to rest properly. I'm preaching to myself here because I need this. and My wife will confirm that. I need to learn better how to rest, and I'm working at it, learning how to rest. Rest is not just vegging out in front of the TV. It's not just dropping in bed at night when you're exhausted. The Sabbath meant more for the Israelites, and it means more for us today. Listen, my next sentence may be the most important thing you take away today. It's this. Setting aside a period of rest is a statement of faith. Setting aside a period of rest is a statement of faith. It demonstrates our belief that God is the one who provides our needs. It's the way of expressing our trust that he can run the universe and our work at the office without us. Psalm 127 confirms this. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to you even in his sleep. Counter to marketplace rationale, if we want to maximize our effectiveness, increase our excellence in work, we must develop a discipline of rest. I'll call it a true rest ethic. Have you lost your edge at work? Have you been putting in a lot of hours? Maybe you feel sluggish, depleted of creative energy from inadequate or consistent rest. Exodus 31, 17 blows my mind. Okay, this is one of of those, you know, you find these, maybe there's a dozen statements I've come across in the scripture that literally blow your mind. This blows my mind. Listen to this. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested, listen, and was refreshed. God was refreshed. From his work. Don't you want to be refreshed? I do. But even after we're convinced that we need rest, we have to learn how to rest. We have to learn ways that we can restore our energy, replenish. Maybe it's reading a book, taking a walk with your child, enjoying coffee and quiet conversation with the spouse, playing golf, fishing with a friend, listening to music, taking a nap, watching a movie, enjoy laughter with friends. The important thing to remember is that rest should be standard and continual. It should be regular. We have to plan for it. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Isn't that beautiful? Tim Keller talks about something he calls the work under the work. You ever heard that phrase? This is where we use our work, the work in our life, to construct an identity and a meaning and a purpose. You know, that's what they did at the Tower of Babel. But this is really turning work into an idol. It's not the way God designed work, because if anything goes wrong with your career, then you lose your sense of self-worth and identity. 
I've seen this happen to men and women many times over the years. It can happen to any of us. But through the gospel, God grants us grace and forgiveness. The work of redemption is finished so we can rest. So work can become work. Work becomes the means of serving our maker with joy and satisfaction. So let me just close with this image. God created the heavens and the earth. And behold, it was very, very good. And when he was finished, he rested. Later, God the Son, Jesus Christ, carried a wooden cross all the way up a hill called Calvary. And there they stretched him out and nailed him to that cross Although he endured excruciating physical pain, the greater pain he endured was the wrath of God as he bore our sins on the cross. And at the end, his very last words were this. It is finished. It is finished. So now, you and I can rest. I'm talking the rest under the rest. And then we are free to work with joy. May God be praised. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, God, that you reveal to us just how much you love us. And God, I thank you that sometimes we feel guilty because we are so stimulated and encouraged through our work. And yet, Lord, this is how you created us. Work is a good thing, but help us not to turn it into an idol, Lord. Help us, to, help us to, to use it for your glory. Help us to find the satisfaction and pleasure and joy that, that you find in work, even today. Oh, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to be a lighthouse in the marketplace. We, we want to be used so that people can see that there's a whole different life, there's a whole different world, a realm called the kingdom of God that exists even in the marketplace through people who know what it means to, to work with excellence, to do it to God, to not be swayed by the, all the things that seem to undermine and seek to distort our work. Oh, Lord, give us that biblical perspective, and may you be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.